it's a, it's a privilege to be here this morning, bringing the word of God and worshiping his holy name with all of you. It's a joy and really an honor for me to be uh, filling in for Pastor Matthew Kerr, whom I've, I've learned to love spending time with, uh, to talk about life and ministry. As he said, he also gave me the privilege of, um, I think a couple of years ago, spending some time with some of your kids at their camp. We had a very great moment um, studying the holiness of God. And I thank you all for having me this morning. It is a great privilege. So I invite you to open your Bibles on Revelation 22. Revelation chapter 22, we will be expounding verses 12 to 17. But for the sake of literary context, we will read to the end of the chapter, till verse 21. Revelation 22, beginning in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the word of the prophecies of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to, to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all. Amen. Father in heaven, um, I commit to you my life once more. And my greatest concern is that your name would be glorified in our midst today. That your name would be lifted up and that we would know you more, fear you more, love you more and live our lives for the glory of God as we feed upon the Word of God this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to this passage of Scripture, we must step back and consider that these are the last words ever spoken by God since the apostolic era, given as inspired and authoritative Scripture to His church. Now, there are two specific areas of context that I want to briefly consider with you, theological and literary, before we dig in our text 
in order to do justice or that we may be adequately equipped to appreciate the astonishing beauty and the unchangeable glory and the absolute sovereignty of Christ as He is uniquely depicted and characterized as majestically as we will ever read of Him in all of sacred scripture in the book of Revelation. The Gospels gives us the story. The Epistles gives us the theology. But Revelation gives us the glory. In this book, Christ is no longer the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, humiliated on the cross, bearing the shame and the guilt of His people, drinking every drop of the wrath of God from the cup of His agony. He is no longer subject or liable to rejection or to mockery, nor is He just a humble son of a carpenter who grew up in an obscure city of Nazareth and became for many a discredited by the populace, blasphemous prophet and counterfeit miracle worker. No, in the book of Revelation, he is the king. He is the lion of Judah. He is the victorious lamb of God, the one that holds the whole world in his hands and therefore has the power to bring about the end of human history exactly as he himself has determined in order that his name may be exalted and glorified forevermore. According to chapter 19, he does not come as a baby in a manger. He is sitting on a white horse, and he is called faithful and true. And in his righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and he is clothed in robes dipped in blood and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen following him to battle, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his tide he has a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so theologically, in many ways, Jesus Christ is established in the book of Revelation as the supreme over all creation. And when it comes to the literary context, it's no different. The same one, our Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation predicts in the immediate preceding chapters that He will exterminate death, Satan and His angels, and that He will establish His eternal kingdom. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. It is done. All visions have been given, all prophecies proclaimed, all battles fought and won by Him. The unfolding of God's redemptive history has come to an end. And what is left for us to hope and consider is the imminent and glorious return and appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I have three general headings on this text. It's really hard to divide him up. But just so we can organize our thoughts as we expound this biblical passage. First of all, we have an upcoming judgment in verses 12 and 13. 
And then we have a sober warning, verses 14 and 15. And then we have a glorious call, verses 16 and 17. So first, an upcoming judgment, which includes obviously the remarkable promise of Christ's imminent and unexpected return. And in the case you were wondering about the main message that arises from Revelation 22, and behold, I'm coming soon, verse 7, behold, I'm coming soon, verse 12, the Spirit and the Bride says, come, and let the one who hears say, come, verse 17, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon, amen, come, Lord Jesus, verse 20. Now notice that in all cases in this chapter, what becomes almost the official announcement that Christ himself makes to characterize his second coming is always framed in terms of its eminence. Behold, I'm coming soon, he says, or quickly in some versions, which means obviously that the scriptures promise that he will come visibly, bodily, and personally, Revelation 1.7 says that every eye shall see him. Unlike his first coming, the second coming, he will appear in the clouds in power and in glory. But we must never forget that one of the most basic and fundamental aspects as to the mode of Christ's second coming is that it will be suddenly and unexpectedly. And obviously, the application of this teaching is that you will not know the day or the hour as all of this is predicted in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25, 24, and 25. And then on Mark 13, Jesus says, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and finds you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And I think Christ himself makes the point on Revelation 16, 15 when he says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. And of course, he is not comparing himself to a thief morally. But the point is that none of us will ever receive a call from a thief saying, I plan to rob your house. What time is best for you? It is unexpected. And the question the scriptures will say to us, remember Martin Luther says that the scriptures are like, like a human, that, that it grabs me, it talks to me, it arrests me, it follows me, it convicts me. And what the scriptures is saying is, are you ready for the coming of Christ? Now that might be a simple question to answer if you're a Christian. Not so simple we'll see in this text. As much as the Bible does speak of the parousia or the appearance of Christ in threatening and terrifying terms, in relationship to the unbeliever to whom it is reserved, 
everlasting wrath and eternal damnation lest he repents. Here in our text, the language, although it might include God's punishment for the unbeliever's sin, it seems to indicate primarily a judgment for works to honor, to honor believers. Now, this same emphasis is seen on Revelation 3.11, where he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Christ here in our text is being described as the one who comes bringing rewards, bringing his recompense, says the ESV, and to give each one according to their deeds. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Now, as Protestants, we do affirm the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We understand that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and that the judgment for our sin has been laid upon him who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Salvation is a gift, period. So what this verse is proclaiming, therefore, is the truth that we will indeed appear before the throne of the Lord in order to be judged in the sense that we will receive by His grace our reward for what we have done for Him with our lives. Hence, the emphasis of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, grab hold of this truth. What we do with our lives now counts for eternity. Every second, every moment, every breath, every dollar, every day counts for eternity. And the Apostle Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15, that there is such a thing as a work that is compared to wood, hay, and straw and will not survive the test of God's fire, therefore not producing any reward. But he says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, including himself and the church, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this is an announcing judgment, not for sin, but for works. And the question is, you know, again, are you ready for the coming of Christ in the sense that what have we been doing with our lives? And... I truly trust that most of you have been given your lives to the Lord. But what if there's one or two in here that need to consider this question? 
some of you are um, some of you are going to to the army that's that's a great thing I will pray for you brother I love the army were you in youth camp two years ago you were great good job it worked that youth camp there is a fruit right there You know, I'll be honest with you, at least I have to consider this question. What have I done with my life? What, what are the works that will stand before the fire of God that I've produced? He has called me to do this. And when Christ says, behold, I'm coming soon, it's a message to the church as well. The announcement of this upcoming judgment is then followed by an affirmation of the identity and really the authority of he who is coming to judge. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is really just Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega being the last. This is just um, a way of saying the same thing three times. He's just saying, I'm all in all, I'm supreme, I am eternal, I am both the uncaused source of all existence and the one who sovereignly determines the end of all things. Now given his power, given his self-sufficiency and his inherent authority, we must therefore heed to his calling and consecrate our lives to him so that he would be pleased with our works when he comes. We have an upcoming judgment, and then I said we have a sober warning. Verses 14 and 15. This sober warning begins with a benediction. Blessed. That comes as a way of contrasting another group that is not so blessed at all. Now remember, there is a sense in which this is God's last redemptive plea to the lost sinner. So he says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Again, in connection to what we've seen in prior verses, this becomes a call to believers in that wash is in the present tense. And it indicates a constant and continuous action. Meaning that as much as there is a sense in which we are washed once and for all of our iniquity and our justification and our robes are made white, our debt is paid in full by Christ, we also wash ourselves every day due to the pressures of this world and the weakness of the flesh by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit as we await the coming of our Lord, we purify ourselves understanding that the instrumental cause of this cleansing of our robes can only be the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in Revelation 7:14, one of the elders will say to John describing the multitudes that were saved. He says, 
They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. So the analogy of the white robes and specifically the washing of these robes in the blood of the Lamb makes reference to the symbology of us being accepted in the presence of God based on the merits of Christ and living a new life for the glory of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're dressed in white. We're pure, flawless, approved, unblemished, sanctified, so that, the text says, we may have the right to the tree of life described in verse 2 of this same chapter, in that they may enter in that they may enter the city by the gates. You see, but in contrast, there is a second group of people that are not blessed and will not enter the city by the gates. It's interesting to note how at the end of chapter 21, when Revelation is describing the new heavens and the new earth. It says that nothing unclean will enter in it ever. So there's a contrast. Those who will enter, those who will not. Those who are dirty and those who are washed. And so the sober warning proceeds now to directly address and specifically mention groups of unbelievers that will not enter into the city gates nor have access to the tree of life. Therefore, they're cursed by God. Outside are the dogs, says verse 15. I'm not going to come in on all of them because honestly, they're self-explanatory. But this one here, I love dogs. I had to look this up because I want to see Pluto in heaven. Uh, it is obvious that the text is not making a predicament on the animal kingdom. It's out of the context. It's not talking about nature. Dogs are not actual dogs. Good news for dog lovers, but here's the thing. I'm not sure dogs will be in heaven either. I'm just saying this text doesn't prove it. <laughs> On Psalm 22, which predicts the crucifixion of the Lord, the author calls dogs those who have pierced Jesus Christ. On verse 16, Philippians 3.2 Dogs are compared to evildoers. Deuteronomy 23, 18, I think the first time that the word dogs appears in Scripture, dogs are compared to prostitutes. So dogs in the time of John were not cute domesticated animals. They were despicable and careless savages, which characterizes those who have an utter disregard for their own moral purity and reputation, you're out. 
and so are the sorcerers, and so are the sexually immoral, and so are the murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. But in Revelation 21, 8, there's another list. Wait, I'm not done. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I don't have time to comment on all of these. I, my time is up, actually. I need to wrap this up. You know, everybody dies once, but not everybody dies twice. And not everybody dies eternally. You see, John Gerstner has said that if it were not Christ to have taught us the doctrine of hell, we would explain it away from the mouth of every other canonical prophet. We would say it's a metaphor, but we cannot deny because Jesus talks about it and here he is again. Now this needs to be said. Clearly the scriptures teach that whoever is not wearing a white robe washed in the blood of the Lamb in the day that He comes will be judged and condemned. But there's hope. There's mercy. We live on this side of the cross. There's love. There's compassion. There's hope. And guess what? If you're listening to me and you're not sure about your salvation, listen very closely. Everyone who was ever saved once was included in the list that I just read. Because the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And how do you put on this robe? How? How do you put it on? Well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and surrender your life. But you see, we also have, we have upcoming judgment Sober warning. And now, I believe the highest peak of this text, a glorious call from verses 16 to 17. Now, here's one, uh, one more very significant aspect of the person of Christ. I will not comment a lot on this, but he does say, I'm the root and the descendant of David. And by saying that he is the root of David, he is proclaiming his preexistence. That even though the Messiah was promised to be a royal descendant of David, nonetheless, he is also the ultimate source of David. He is also the sustainer and preserver of Judah's lineage. 
as it is established in the New Testament in light of Psalm 110. He is the son of David, but at the same time, he is David's Lord. The one in whom the Davidic covenant would be fulfilled as God himself promised David an eternal dynasty in 1 Samuel 7. Matthew 1.1 will say, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And the self-designation of bright morning star makes reference to his dazzling ability to be the light of the world. And in case you were wondering what will light up heaven, Revelation 21, 23, in this city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. I am the bright morning star, and now we come to the glorious call. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let those who hear say, come. This is the Spirit in the church joining together in a magnificent call for the second coming of Christ. Now isn't it glorious when the Holy Spirit and the church unite to express their extreme desire that the glory of God would be vindicated. And that evil and that sin and that the devil and his angels would finally be dealt with. That this eternal kingdom that has been promised would finally be established forevermore. And that the fellowship between the Lamb and His bride would be sealed and secured eternally. We cannot wait for the day when all who blaspheme your name and purposefully reject the gospel will also have to bow down before your majesty and confess with their lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, glorious day. I wish I would not finish this sermon. This is a call that expresses the Holy Spirit's and the church's desire for the second coming of our glorious King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you desire the coming of Christ? You see, we get lost very easily. I get lost very easily. I was thinking about this when I was... Writing this sermon, I was like, you know, I pray for so many things. Oh, Lord, purge me. Oh, Lord, bless me. Oh, Lord, use me. But, Lord, come, just solves it all. I was praying to God. I was saying, Lord, may I not preach one more sermon in my life. Just come. That's it. Do not purge me. Do not give me opportunities to evangelize people. None of that. Just and that's it. Now, since a little bit of apostolic expectations, Paul, Philippians 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, henceforth 
There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, you see the judge giving the crown, the same example we've seen in verse 12, that this is a judgment for works. He will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearance. James 5, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now the second part of the call is not a prayer of expectation and vindication made by the people of God to the Lord, but rather it is an evangelistic appeal made by the people of God to the lost that they would come and join the choir of those who say, come to Him. They're saying, and let the one who is thirsty come. Now a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If anyone thirsts, says Jesus on John 7, let him come to me and drink. And so the church and the Spirit are saying, Come! Let him who thirsts, come! Come! Take the water of life without price. And clearly an allusion to Isaiah 55. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Incline your ears and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Now, I'm preaching this message, and sorry for the Brazilian style. Can't help it. I'm preaching this message to encourage the saints that Christ is coming. That you've never, you, you have no idea what he has in store for you. And you know what the best thing is about heaven? God. You see, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And we will be, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. So Christian, be encouraged in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I do not apologize 
for preaching to unbelievers who must come to Christ in order to be saved. I don't apologize. You might be here today. Maybe you came because your dad says, let's go. Maybe you're, you've been, you grew up in church. You are familiar with the religious context, but you haven't been born again. It's possible. You know, Nicodemus, you're not, we can't be better than Nicodemus in terms of justice and works. I mean, the name of the guy, Nico, which is, comes from where the Nike brand gets his name, means victory. Nike, Demas. You can't be, you, the best we can be is Adidas Demas. can't be saved by works. You must come. You must come. Now today we've seen an upcoming judgment. Behold, I'm coming soon. And he will come to reward his church for her works, but also to judge the unrepentant sinner. We've seen secondly a sober warning. Some are blessed because they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, and some are not. And they will not enter into the city gates and have access to the tree of life unless they repent. But we've also seen, thirdly, a glorious call. Everyone is invited to come and say with the Spirit in the church, Come, Lord Jesus, to which call the Lord actually responds in verse 20, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we so desire that you would come. We're, we're having the Lord's Supper here today, and what a joy would it be if we had the Supper of the Lamb. We wish, Lord, that you would vindicate your glory, your justice. We wish that you would establish your kingdom. But, Lord, there is also a great responsibility in desiring the coming of Christ. It means we're ready for him. It means that we are producing good works. We were called for good works. And it also means, Lord, that we've surrendered our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as of today, we, we um, follow what the Apostle Paul has said in the Scriptures, that we should live with fear and trembling in the years of our pilgrimage. For the glory of God, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.